Your business is an asset that can support a thriving life. I believe this, and I'm committed to making this a reality for every entrepreneur and business owner who listens to this podcast. The Women Thriving in Business podcast was created with you in mind. Whether you're thinking about entrepreneurship or you've been in business for a while, this show has inspiration, information, and advice that you can use to thrive in business. Women Thriving in Business features candid and unscripted conversations with entrepreneurs, business experts, authors, and academics who can contribute to your business success. I talk with leaders who have built thriving organizations and who are willing to share both the positive and challenging realities of the entrepreneurial journey. My name is Nikki Rogers. I am a transformation strategist and the host of the Women Thriving in Business podcast. I work with women leaders to develop the mindset, strategies, and relationships necessary to thrive in business. Join me and your fellow thrivers each week on this journey of discovery and success. Welcome thrivers to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. Today, we actually have a treat for you. I have not one, but two guests with me on this week's episode. And my guests today are Dr. Amy Beacon and Sue Campbell, and they are with the Center for Parental Leave Leadership. So welcome to the podcast, Amy and Sue. Thank you for having us, Nikki. Great. So I am going to start off with Amy and then I'll circle around to Sue that way. We can control the chaos a little bit. But Amy, can you tell me about the Center of Parental Leadership and what actually prompted you to start the business? Sure. So we are the only full-service consultancy in the country to focus exclusively on parental leave. And we have been around since 2014, So, which seems like yesterday, but is like eight years ago. It's too many years ago. And we do everything from audits of your parental leave culture and practices and data collection to consulting around policy and practice to coaching and for managers and training for managers and new parents and assessment and screening. We bring a perinatal mental health lens to what we do as well. So we are the first to bring perinatal mental health screening into the workplace. What else? Sue, do you want to add anything there? That's CPLL. We go by CPLL for short because Center for Parental Leave Leadership is long. (laughs) It's a mouthful, but you all do a lot. (laughs) Yes, yes, we do. And we've been lucky to. I've been focused on parental leave for 15 years since I had my first child. And I changed the focus of my doctoral work from women's leadership and coaching to create a new field, which at the time I was calling maternity coaching. And now we call parental leave coaching and consulting. And so I've been doing that for 15 years and in this iteration for eight. And I love it. I get to help define the market and serve it. And it's just been really exciting. I love it. I love it. And we'll get Sue in here in just a second. But 
you alluded to getting started in this field when you had your first child. What led you to actually create a business around this versus mm-hmm. saying creating either a nonprofit or, or really just staying focused on advocacy? It's a great question. I don't know if anyone's ever asked me that. Before I had gone back to grad school, I had helped start a coaching company, an executive coaching company. So we did a lot of leadership development offsites, and that company was bought by one of the big consulting companies in our country and before I went back to school. So I had some experience in that already, and that always I've been an entrepreneur since I was born. And then when I had my son, I had just finished helping create the first coaching curriculum that they had at Columbia University where I was doing my doctorate. And I was working as a consultant, an independent consultant in New York. And I was doing advocacy work just around women's leadership and women's economic advancement. But I felt very, very strongly that we needed more examples of businesses being led well that were doing work that was mission-based, but also profitable and sustainable over time. And so I very consciously didn't create a nonprofit. I wanted it to be a for-profit that served and acted as a, a B Corp, that we would make enough money that I could then feed that back into our scholarships or our different pieces that help those who are less privileged around their work and around parental leave. So We have done that. And then for the first six years of CPLL, about 45% of our work was pro bono advocacy work. So we really have done a lot of that as well, just to ensure that that mission is met of really making sure that everyone in this country, regardless of their role or their level of job, have a paid and supported parental leave process. And so I want to get you in here. How did you get involved with CPLL and why? Well, Amy and I met because our oldest kids were in the same class. And Amy found out I was a writer and was like, oh, I need you. (laughs) (laughs) And Amy is also a fantastic writer, but she needed big volumes of content and she couldn't do it all on her own. So she took me out to coffee and laid this all out in front of me of what she was able to create with her dissertation. And this is right when she was starting the company. And what struck me the most and why I was like so eager to sign on was because she was not saying this is a parent's problem to solve. You decided to have a kid, you deal with it. She was saying, this is a systemic problem. Our country is not at the point yet where we have a systemic government solution where we're providing paid leave. Our best chance to make this better for parents is at the employer level. Because we spend so much of our time at work, if employers can understand the benefit to them, that this is actually an opportunity that's being overlooked. If we can nurture and support parents through this process, they just become these rock stars at the other side of it. If we can sell them on that message, train the managers on how to support the parents, this is just going to go so, so far into improving the parental leave culture in the country as a whole, if we can go through the employers. And I had had an experience that really bore that out. Like I saw my own skills grow exponentially after I had my first kid. And I saw that my organization, I was working for a city government at the time, did not know how to handle this in a meaningful, process-driven, supportive way. I was lucky to have a really great boss who was very empathetic and was looking out for me. 
But I was like gobsmacked that my organization didn't really have a plan for me. Couldn't tell me like what to expect apart from some, here's your short-term disability and here's exactly how much leave you get. And that was it. So as soon as she presented this to me, I'm like, yep, sign me up. How do I help? Let's do it. (laughs) Thank goodness she did. So you all will bring up a good point around this being a societal issue. Can you talk about why that is? So what are some of the statistics around the issues related to lack of parental leave and why why should everyone care about it? So you, like you said, a lot of people are like, I don't have kids or you chose to make that life choice. Why should companies, why should people who don't have children, why should society in general care about parental leave policies? Should I start to? Yeah, you got the stats <laughs> memorized. Well, <laughs> well, I think where I want to start is just by making sure your audience knows that we are the only wealthy country and practically the only country, I think there's six others at this point in the entire world that don't have a federal paid leave solution. So a lot of people think that FMLA is paid leave or that people have paid leave already in this country and they're in for a rude awakening when they become a parent or their child becomes a parent and they're like, whoa, I thought you had paid leave. So there's paid leave and then there's practice of how we interact around that time frame. So I'll stick with the paid leave part for a second longer. In our country, we have 25% of birthing moms going back to work within two weeks of giving birth. So that's 25% going back within two weeks of giving birth because they are financially unable to stay out longer. And so what that does for our country is we have millions of people going, there's 4 million babies born a year. So 25%, that's a million moms a year going back within two weeks of giving birth. So they're healing at that point. Their newborn is in a 10, you know, who knows what situation that newborn is put into in the absence of their mother being back at work, that family, any older children, any relationship with a partner, all of that is put into a stress point, into a vice grip of trauma. And that's how we're starting our families in this country. And that's how we're starting our working parenthood. And so when you think about that transition from a person to a parent to a working parent, what we want in this country is to have that be a strong and supported life transition so that we have working parents who are able to show up in their work in all the ways that we need them to. We also want strong families. We want strong relationships, less divorce, healthier children, less death rate. The maternal mortality rate is abysmal. And when you start talking about Black women's mortality and mental health rates around birth, it is three times as bad as white women. So there's so many different issues that can be addressed during this time frame. The first one that companies care about is retention. And retention, as many, many, many women fall out or are forced out of the workforce or the leadership pipeline around becoming a parent. So if we're able to change how we think about and interact with this parental leave timeframe, we call it the parental leave transition. It's roughly a year to two years of time, that nine months of baby and then a year postpartum, 
if that time frame is understood as a normal and linear moment in a career that the majority of people in this country experience at some point in their life, and we treat it that way for moms and dads, for all birthing parents, for all non-birthing parents, we can just change the way that all of this gets done. And then all of those things that you learn during that time, how to be a better manager, how to communicate better, how to be more efficient, how to, the list goes on, right? You learn things. (laughs) All of that, you bring it back into your work. We're missing out on capturing all of that development and growth with the way that we have things. Instead, we're just feeding that trauma. That was a long answer, but a lot to say there. Yeah. I mean, I think that's super important to understand when I think about having to go back to work after two weeks. I mean, how do you find childcare in the midst of there's a stark shortage of childcare providers? How do you even get to that mental place of, can I find a childcare provider? And then can I trust them? And now I have to leave my child. And I mean, I think it's very unfortunate that we have 25% of parents who are in that space. And I am just talking, that study is on birthing moms. It's not the dads Mm -hmm. because it's specifically showing the healing. Like your your body is in no way ready to go back to work if you've just given birth in two weeks. You're not even close, (laughs) let alone your mind and your heart. And so when you're talking about parental leave, it incorporates or encompasses, I'm I'm assuming birthing moms, adoptive parents, dads, Other parents, however you become a parent, you really are advocating or helping to create policies that support anyone who's welcoming a child into their family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any way they form their family and any age of that child. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. we talk a lot about babies in this country, but a lot of people become a parent later. There's a lot of kinship parenting now, especially with. Oh, I read a horrible stat this week about the number of children who have lost parents and are orphaned because of the COVID, because of the pandemic. And so those new parents to them also in many places becoming parents for the first time. It might be an aunt who's taking over. There's an adjustment period that just needs to be recognized so that when that person goes back to work, they can go back to work fully, right? Like it's a... And I just want to put in a plug for the gender piece of it too. When I came to this work with Amy, I was like, look, can we just fix this for the moms first, right? Can we just help the women first? Because they've been so under-resourced and in so much pain around this. And what I came to see and realize is that until we make this a wider issue and include men or any gender identifying criteria equally as likely to be welcoming a child into the world and needing time to bond with that child, until we enable everyone to be a caregiver, we're going to penalize women who choose to give birth in the workplace. Because in the back of your mind, when you're making that hiring decision, you may not even be conscious of it, but you're like, oh, is she going to go out and you know be gone for three or four months? Well, then I'm not going to give her this opportunity. But if that's off the table and anyone could go out, even a person who has an aging parent to care for, and they're likely to become a caregiver, right? We need to destigmatize caregiving so that we can enable everyone to have a level playing field at work. I love that idea because... 
like you said, it normalizes it for everyone. And it doesn't single any one person or any, right. you know, any one type of person out to say like, oh, they're likely to have this life transition. Like everybody right. is expected to have some type of life transition and the policies can accommodate that. So you talked about this challenge around retention and, and maybe even promotion, particularly we're talking about particularly for women at this moment, <laughs> but equally applicable. What else are companies concerned about? Because, you know, I guess my question is, why have they not to date implemented, I'm going to say family-friendly policies, right? So why now? Why is this imperative now? What are you seeing from clients, potential clients that they're really interested in Mm -hmm. taking this a little bit more seriously now? Yeah, I think that the short answer is that for many For any woman becoming a parent, this has always been an issue, but the pandemic took the blinders off for a lot of people of it being an issue. So that's one thing. It also changed the expectation of the parent going on leave. So there's a demographic shift that's happening in part generationally. And I think in part historically, just because of what we're facing as a country that now employees won't tolerate it anymore. (laughs) They're just, they're like, no, no more. I'm not, I need this time. I expect this time. My priorities have shifted. I have them in better alignment with my values now. And I am not going to lose this critical, important time in the formation of my family. And so the employers are responding to that and realizing, oh, we can't hire this good talent, let alone keep them unless we offer this as a baseline and paid leave is a baseline. And then there's how you interact around that. Meaning, are your managers trained well? Do you offer coaching? What other ancillary services and supports do you give to your employees across the board so that they can navigate this time well and clearly for the company and themselves? Are there particular industries that are particularly are there specific industries that are particularly open right now or are entertaining the conversation versus some others? Yes. Tech started all of this years ago. And so the big tech companies started it, thankfully. It's still hard to go. If you think about more traditional jobs or industries, so oil and gas, engineering, construction, architecture, lawyers, you know, like lawyers moved a little quicker than some of those other ones, but there's still so much work to be done. But anywhere that have been historically male top heavy have been slower to come on board because they just haven't experienced it in the same way. That is shifting. Even two years ago, there were whole entire swaths of industry that weren't even talking about this. And now that's not the case. Everybody's talking about this. And if they don't have it, they're working actively to get it. I don't know if that helps. Um, The other thing I would mention is it's also geographic. So Hmm. different parts of the country interact around parental leave differently. The coast, the cities are much more likely to have uh, parental leave just be a normal thing of support and where it's harder in the places that also have a more traditional mindset. I don't know if I'm using the right language around that, Sue. Do you see that? Would you? I haven't really talked about it that way before. 
But I know, yes. like, for example, Texas, we have an oil and gas client that four years ago became the first to offer paternity leave. But until that point, there weren't any in the oil and gas industry that were offering any paternity leave. So they had maternity leave, but it wasn't something that was extended to the dad. So we see a lot of shifting in that way now where there may have been a maternity leave policy and now they're talking about it more as a parental leave policy or they're adding a paternity leave policy that is more than one or two days. So that's been a relief, especially because with this generational shift we're seeing, there's so many dads who want and expect to be part of their families as equal caregivers. Hallelujah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as you talked about some of the industries that have been more resistant, kind of the ones that are more male dominated, but when you think about, there's several industries that are more dominated by women, such as in the caring professions, healthcare, service industry. And with the pandemic, we've really seen this wide gap, right? Between when you start talking about essential workers and frontline workers who are often the lesser paid jobs, Mm -hmm. but yet their demands were quadrupled, I would say, exponentially increased during the pandemic. What are you seeing around those industries around this idea of parental leave? Yeah. What you're talking about is you know, I was saying geographic and those kinds of things, but it's also job level. So what kind of job it is. And it is still a predominantly white collar experience to have a supported or paid leave policy. That is why we spend so much time focusing on advocacy, because we will not get that to change until there is a federal or state level policy. And right now we have 11 states plus DC that have had paid leave or just passed it. So that's happening at the state level. We had, as part of the Build Back Better Act, there was a paid leave policy for the whole federal policy, a nationwide policy that did not pass because Build Back Better did not pass. So there's renewed efforts to try and get that to happen, but we are not going to see that happening unless something unexpected occurs for a while. So that's changed the strategy back down to the state level. And so if you're talking about, let's say, it's probably not fair to use this as an example because I don't actually know their policy, but if you're talking about like a fast food chain that is in multiple states, even though that is a low wage job, they are more likely to have a paid leave policy because they are a national chain and even an international chain in some cases. Because we're the only country, a lot of pressure comes from external, comes from outside of the country. If you have, and then also when you go inside of the country, you have the different states. And if you're in those different states, you have to offer, you don't have to, but it is wise to offer this same benefit to everyone across the country if you're required mm-hmm. to do it in some states. And so we're seeing much more of that happening now that we're getting more momentum around the number of states requiring paid leave of their employers. So yeah, if there's the advocacy side and then there's many, many root factors of what pushes this to happen and what pushes it to happen well. And so what would you say to small business owners or medium-sized business owners who would say, well, paid leave is going to increase the cost of paying employees? Mm -hmm. And so 
I'm not in favor of that. What is the answer to that? Yeah, or or what is some of, yeah. So what are, I mean, yeah, there's multiple answers, right? But how do you help them get behind this idea of either state or federal level requirements for this type of leave? What people don't understand is that if they're a small business owner, it is usually much more expensive to not have a state policy. That state program decreases the cost on that employer. It takes it off of them. It makes them not responsible for it exclusively. And many of the states is the employer pays a small amount into an insurance fund and the employee pays a small amount into an insurance fund. So then that employee, when they go out on leave, is able to pull from that insurance fund to pay for that. So they're usually decreasing their costs with a state-level program. At the federal level, same deal, even more so because it would be part of the taxes and not have a per-employee input. So that's one thing. The other thing is they've already budgeted for this person's salary. It's not an added expense. They're just (laughs) letting them go on leave and be supported during this time that will make them come back and be fully engaged and loyal to their employer. It's a way to build trust to show you there's so many other reasons why this is a good thing. But just showing the numbers often helps shift people's thinking about that. There's a knee-jerk reaction with any employer, which I am an employer, to not have a mandate, not feel like you're being told you have to do something. But what happens if we don't have that in our country is people won't do it. And they won't understand that it doesn't have to be expensive and it doesn't have to be crazy. What is most difficult for employers isn't so much the cost as navigating the different laws and different rules because we don't all have the same one within the same states. So, Sue, do you want to add to that? If we look at a state like California, which has had a policy, a state-level policy for a long time now, more than 10 years, more like 15 or maybe 12 now. Yeah, they've long time. And when they survey the employers, the employers are like, this has had no negative impact or even a positive impact on my business. Majority of business owners say it had no impact, no negative impact, or it's actually had a positive impact. It's one of those things where people will try to get everybody really amped up and nervous and scared about what's going to happen on the other side. And then when you get to the other side, you're like, actually, this is pretty great because I can keep this employee. They're not going to quit because (laughs) they have a kid and they're still going to get paid and I don't have to be the one to pay it. This is what's called a win-win. So I, I think it is just really diving into getting into the data and the details instead of that knee-jerk reaction where you're like, I can't make my business any more expensive or any more complicated. Which right. is valid. So, which is totally valid. Right. I mean, I think it's all the things, right? It's cheaper to keep an employee than to recruit a new one. And I yep. think as business owners, it's easy to get caught up in this is an incremental cost versus thinking about if I have to replace this employee, like we're starting over. It's not only money, it's yeah. time, it's stress, it's all those things. And when um, we think about time, I think we've also shifted around time. Like three months is the blink of an eye. We can't even get on people's calendars in the blink in three months sometimes. So that also is important just to think about. It's really a short amount of time, that minimum of three months. Exactly. So Amy, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your business specifically. You said you've been in business since 2014. Yep. So as you think about your time in business, what have been some of the challenges that you faced as you worked 
to grow the business? Mm. I think I chose a tricky business that lives on the intersection of culture change and changing a world. It's a very future-oriented. I got into it a little too early. <laughs> Let's just say that. I'm still convincing people of the merit, but whoever comes next in three years, five years, two years, and this year, they're not going to have that problem. So I'm in a, a little bit of a unique position, I think, with my company in that I was, like I said earlier, defining, creating the field while also servicing it. So there's been a lot of, it's harder to get clients because I have to find the ones that are already so progressive that they get it those future thinking ones. In fact, I should mention like when I started, there was no market here and it was so difficult that I ended up having to go to Australia where they were much further ahead than we were and pilot all of our programs and our coaching and everything over there where they had asked me to come and do it because they understood the need because they'd had longer paid leaves for a a long time. So we're getting there in this country, but we're not 100% there. So that's one difficulty is just how do you get clients when there is not a budget line item? When I started, no companies had a budget line for parental leave, none. Like that was not a thing. And so it took years of talking about, you're going to need to create a budget for this. You're going to need a leave navigator. You're going to need to have funding within your company so that you can support this time and have it paid. So early on, the only budget that was in any companies around parental leave was the around pay, around any kind of pay for leave. And that is not what I'm talking about here. We're talking about how do you use parental leave as a culture change lever? How do you use it to support your employees? How do you use it for leadership development? And so just creating budgets to pay us to do that. (laughs) That was tricky. What have been some other ones, Sue? Having employees, because I really, I walk my talk and I believe in this and Sue will have to speak to this in case I'm lying. I try to (laughs) walk my talk. That means that whoever works with me has as much leave as they need can come when they're able to come to work, that I'm supporting them more than they're supporting me. And Mm -hmm. that is not easy. It's critically important and value aligned for me, but it is not easy and has left me many, many times doing all the work. (laughs) And so that's just one thing I think any entrepreneur faces. But for me in this field, it's like ratcheted up a notch because... I don't want to also be not in alignment with my value or being seen as, what is the right word? Hypocrite. Yeah, hypocrite. Exactly. And I think another challenge has also been, and it speaks to Amy's first point, knowing what to focus on and Mm -hmm. how to package it in a way that employers understand. So we've had to be very flexible. And even though most of Amy's work is around practice, we've really had to come in and meet people, which is policy. And then grow them into the idea of, okay, great. You've got words on paper now. How are you going to support that in a meaningful way in the day-to-day? So packaging up those things and being able to pivot, talk policy one minute and then practice the next. And how do we put this package together for them to understand the value of it 
when no one's ever experienced it has really, really been a challenge that I think we're really getting there now. There's this momentum where people are starting to get it and we're not having to do so much filling in the blanks for them. So true. Every single client we had for years, probably until this year, was a reinvention of the wheel every time, every single time. Which was, I just took as a growth opportunity of really like, okay, if we're going to define it, then we need all these experiences to understand how it's being experienced and what helps different organizations in what ways and maybe at different times. And so how do you, I imagine there's lots of people, lots of traditional HR consultancies and others who may claim that they can do what you do. I guess, how do you really help educate your partners who maybe already have a relationship, potential partners, Mm -hmm. like someone is saying, come in and build my HR structure. Mm -hmm. How are you all able to create awareness around what you do and maybe how you can partner with them in order to build the best for their clients? Or is it more of you're going in there saying, we can do this part for you around parental leave. So how do you open up those doors, I Mm -hmm. guess? Sue, I see you wanting to... I just think a really big ace up our sleeve is that Amy has an evidence-based framework based on her doctoral dissertation. This is very academically rigorous and it's been piloted and tested. And nobody else to our knowledge is doing that unless they're being trained by us as well. So that's a really big piece of the puzzle. Not that there aren't other people out there that can do good work, There are a lot of wonderful coaches out there, but we don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to reinvent it for every client. We maybe had to invent packages of how we were going to serve clients, but all of the pedagogy was already there. And the framework of what we really needed to do to support these parents and train their managers as to why was is really, really solid. Yeah, I think it sounds egotistical and I don't mean it to be, but I conceived of and developed the field. So that's a big selling point. (laughs) And, you know, we are training people to do that now within their own work because we need thousands of people doing this work in this country. So we did this year in March, we started our first Retain Parental Leave Coaching Certification Program. And we have 32 people right now who are training up in that. And what I hope to do and plan to do is have our products and services define the field and be the things that everyone out there will come back to have that strong evidence base to have the tried and tested assessment tools and you know all the methods and all the different things so that they're bringing their special sauce to it in their work but it really is built on this foundation and that comes from my work in the 90s was around executive coaching and so executive coaching Also, what happened was people started to come into it and then it got really diluted and nobody really said, oh, this is what really works. It was like the cart came after the horse or came before the horse or however that works. And I came out of that experience watching billions of dollars be spent on horrible executive coaching that was just wasted. And I said, I'm going to start here with this foundation and really figure out what works and what needs to happen during this very precise and specific time in a person's professional and personal life in that life cycle. And we're going to nail it. And once we do, 
then we'll have that foundation. The rest of it can grow from. And so for me, that's been my drive. It hasn't been, how do I get the best client? How do I make the most money up till about a year ago? It was, how do I make sure that this is exactly what this country needs, given our specific, unique set of circumstances in this country? And now that that's done, and we really know it works well, and it has all of the different parts that it needs, now I'm shifting my attention to how do we get it out there? How do we make enough money to keep it growing, to keep it going? You know, all of those more business-focused pieces of it. Where to now, it was just like, this has to be really dang good, right? <laughs> I love it. So what would you say is one of your biggest achievements within the business? I created my dream. I don't know how I just... That's such a great question. I'm going to reflect on that tonight. But I had a vision when my son was born that we needed a new field in this country that supported working parents and in this most critical time. And I did it. I don't know. <laughs> I love that. I mean, said, not, right? not many people can say they they yeah. created their dream. So I, I love that. Like, yeah, I and I did it because I've been surrounded with incredible people like Sue is one. I mean, my team is incredible and just as committed to this as I am. But part of that was writing the book, getting the, you know, Sue and I don't know if we've even mentioned that, but Sue and I wrote a book during the pandemic. It's like a coach in your hand. And I think getting that out there is also something I'm really proud of. That's something I wanted for a long time and was able to do because I was able to do it with Sue. Yeah, the book's called The Parentally Playbook, by the way. And mm -hmm. I'll just put in a quick plug for another piece that Amy has developed that I had very little to do with. It's called the Parental Leave Transition Assessment. So this is the first scientifically, you know, academically rigorous assessment tool for the parental leave transition. So parents can look at what are my assets going into this situation? What are my liabilities? Where are the things that are on the edge where they could go either way? How do I prevent them from becoming sabotages and instead like lean them towards assets? It's an incredible report that you get at the end of it that you can use as a tool to way more effectively plan your parental leave because you know what you have going for you and you know what pitfalls to avoid. Yeah, I'm a big qualitative and quantitative junkie. Like I love data and I think it's really important to not just have one or the other. And so mm -hmm. when you're doing coaching work, one of the things I loved about executive coaching work were some of the really strong assessment tools that you could use around that. Maybe it's a really good 360 tool or you know something like that. And I just was like, we need one for parental leave. We need one for, if I'm going to create a field of parental leave coaching, we need a really strong assessment tool. So I was lucky enough to get the blessing of the woman who created transition theory. Her name is Dr. Nancy Schlossberg to build off of her ideas around transition theory into this, what I call the success system for transition success. And I worked with professors at Cal Poly and Portland State University and just really good org psych people to develop this. And it is just thank you, Sue, for mentioning it. It is one of the things I am most proud of too, because it's awesome. <laughs> and it makes the coaching work so much easier and fun. And I've had coaches say it saves them 
six to eight sessions because you get so much rich information in this 22 or 24 page report that's personalized to that individual. The parent takes a long assessment, a survey, and then they get a report personalized to them. It's really, really incredibly helpful with advice and what do you do and, you know, all this stuff that comes with it. And then we use that in the coaching work too. I love that. So tell me who the book is written for. Is the book written for organizations or is that for the individual parents? It's written for parents. This is to replace, you know, if your organization does not offer anything like the services for the Center for Parental Lead Leadership, this is a way to get a coach in your hand because there's a lot you can do to lead your own leap. So we give you the tools to do that in the book. Our hope is that leaders and HR and managers will also read it. They get a window into that employee experience as well as there's a whole bunch of learning in there for them too. Normally in our work, everything is new parent manager aligned. So for example, in the book, the first touch point is your announcement. And what we talk about there for the new parent is how do you lead your leave through your announcement? What do you need to do? Who do you announce to? When do you do it? What do you need to say? What's your energy around that? All the different things that need to be considered around your announcement. But for the manager side, what we're teaching the manager is how do you respond to that announcement? What is your reaction? What do you need to do to prepare for when somebody comes to you? So you already have a script in your head. You've already thought through that and you are in this moment of shock, only thinking like, oh my gosh, our project just got derailed. Whatever it might be, or oh crap, our whole company's going to fail because they're going to be gone. Right. So we're each of these touch points, we're doing that new parent version and that manager version. I love this idea because I think it would be really relevant for manager training. I think it's really relevant to have this as a resource if you're thinking about having a baby, right? Mm -hmm. Or you're thinking about adopting a child, expanding your family, just having this as a resource that is available, kind of the, you know, what to expect when you're expecting, but what to to expect when exactly what it is. Leave. And so I think this is a really valuable resource. For managers, as well as for individuals who are are thinking about how do they do this in a way that creates that supportive and welcoming environment for the child they're welcoming into their family while also helping them maintain their career if that's what they choose to do. So I love, love both of those. Can you all share how folks can get in contact with you if they are interested in learning more or, or in buying the book? Absolutely. So we're online at cplleadership.com. And if you want specific book info, you can do a slash book on there. If you have any inquiries for us, you can just email us. Just do info at cplleadership.com. And we love to hear from people. We really like to keep our ear to the ground and see what people need. And I would add that the book is anywhere books are sold. You don't have to get it through our website. Anywhere books are sold. And we would love for you to review it if you do read it. And when you buy the book, you also get a link to a bunch of free online resources that they wouldn't let us put in the book because it would have gotten too long. And they're more useful when you download them anyway. So when you buy the book, you can get a link to access a checklist and reflection workbooks and an action planning tool. And a lot of stuff that you didn't even know you needed, but you'll be so happy to have. (laughs) Great. I love that. And all that information will be in the show notes. Before I let you go, I have two questions I ask every guest. So both of you all get to answer these two questions. 
So first of all, and we'll go Sue and then Amy, what are one or two songs on your power playlist and why? Oh, both songs are by Lizzo. (laughs) (laughs) Just almost any Lizzo songs on my power playlist there. That's it. (laughs) Just Lizzo, her her whole entire discography. Okay. Yep. And Amy, what are one or two songs in your power playlist? You know what is so pathetic? I don't even have time to listen to music anymore. I am just, oh I'm so sad. I have been more, oh God, I don't, I need a power playlist. Why don't I have a power playlist? <laughs> I'll make you the one. Only, the only one that I, I really have been loving with my daughter is just Taylor Swift. We've just really been rocking out to Beyonce and Taylor Swift. <laughs> Those are our two, but I can't, I don't know. That's our two right now. And Sue's going to make me a power playlist I just heard. Thanks, Sue. Yay. See, see, good things come out of this podcast. It's great things. So I just, I know we're running out of time, but I just have to say how inspiring this is because for Christmas, I said to my husband, all I want is music in my life again. And I never get to listen to music. And he gave me a, like a, what are they called? Like a, a, a speaker that you can move around and talk to and tell you to play things. So you listen to how old I am. (laughs) (laughs) Smart speaker, Amy. Smart speaker. It's brilliant. And a Sonos. That's the word I was looking for. It's a Sonos. Okay. But I've had it since December and haven't set it up. So Sue, your power playlist is going to help me do that. Okay. Now this one should be easier. What is one book that you would say has helped you thrive in business? And I'll start with Amy and then Sue. Oh gosh, this is a very old book. One of my mentors, his name is David Dotlick, wrote a book called Action Learning back in the mid nineties. And he now has like 12 books, but this book was his first book and I got to help him write it. I was like his helper, not, I wasn't writing this book by any stretch, but What it did for me was see how a business owner could write a book and how that was possible to combine your book writing with your work. And so for me, even though it wasn't the topic, it was but the act of being part of the writing of that book, it was incredibly powerful and influential in me building my company. And this is Sue, and I am a nonfiction self-help business book junkie. So it's actually really hard <laughs> for me to do just one. But the one that I'll mention that has made the most difference is not specifically a business book, but it's a book by Martha Beck called Steering by Starlight. And it's mm-hmm. making sure that you are setting yourself on a path that is aligned with your essential self, not with what culture tells you to be. And I'm an entrepreneur as well. I, Amy and I work together, but I have my own business as well. And I just, that book, I go back to at least once a year and reread it because it just really helps you stay attuned to yourself and what you really want. I love that. I love that. It's such a good one. Well, Amy and Sue, thank you so much. This has been great. Um, Nikki, you have to tell us what your book is. Oh my goodness. I have so many books, but the book I give to everyone is You Are Badass. Mm -hmm. I gave that to my son. (laughs) (laughs) I buy that book for everyone and I give it to everyone. So that is probably my top one right now, but I am always reading a book. So I have multiple ones on deck. And right now I'm also reading Bring Yourself, which is a Mm -hmm. book about negotiation. Mm -hmm. It's about connection. 
using your humanity mm-hmm. to connect in yep. the negotiation space. So that is the one I'm reading right now. And what else? I just finished reading Grit. Uh-huh. So I'm always reading like three or four books at the same time. That's great. Me too. Same. All right. So nice to talk to you, Nikki. Thank you so much. It was great talking to both of you all. This has been delightful. And I look forward to seeing all the great things that come in the future. Yes. Thanks so much, Nikki. Bye. Take care. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women Thriving in Business podcast. If you like this episode, share it with a friend and then join the conversation on social media and let us know what you learned or what resonated for you. Be sure to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Until next week, keep thriving.